The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this morning we give attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. If you would follow along in your Bibles with me, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says this, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. <clears throat> We jump back into what we really stirred up and started last week we can, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where, uh, Timothy, uh, where Paul writes to Timothy in the midst of the chaos that's going on in the Ephesian church, and in, in which we've got uh, leaders who were key leaders in the church who have gone rogue, who have doctrinally gone rogue, and, and we would assume along with their doctrinal uh, sort of uh, movement, they've also sort of gone rogue, uh, practically speaking, in the life of the church. They're stirring up conflict. They're seeking to uh, win people over to their side with their false doctrine. And so it's stirred up no small problem in the church. And, and it's, uh, it's fallen on Timothy's plate to try to manage this and to try to resolve the conflict and to deal with these leaders in the church who have status in the body and yet are unbiblical in what they're teaching and what they're doing. And we know Timothy, uh, based on our study thus far, as a young man uh, who doesn't have the the age and the sort of the tread on his tires that the Apostle Paul had. And so there's a temptation for the people in the church to look down on him or maybe to not esteem him as much as they would of Paul. So he's somewhat disadvantaged in his ability to navigate this conflict. And Paul knows about it, so he writes this letter, at least in part, to, to sort of support Timothy and to give him some words of wisdom. You know, he can't pick up his iPhone and FaceTime him like we would today, right? We can't beam him in on the screens. He writes a letter. And he says to Timothy, here's some things you need to know. It was intended to be read aloud so everybody in the church knew what he was saying. And it was intended by Paul to bolster what Timothy was doing in the life of the church as the pastor of the church. And the big problem, at least partially, was leadership gone bad. And it, it was a problem in Ephesus, and it's been a problem for the Christian church all throughout the history of the Christian church. Leaders who go bad. It's a blight on the church. It's an embarrassment to the church. It's an embarrassment to the name of Jesus. It's an embarrassment to the testimony of Christ in the world full of lost people who are watching the church. And yet, nearly, hardly a week or month goes by without, even in our modern day, pulling it up on Facebook or on the news or somewhere, finding out about a church leader, somewhere who had status in a church, someone to whom people looked up as a religious leader, as a spiritual advisor, as a confidant, as a teacher who's gone sideways theologically, or who's gone sideways in the way that they live, and it becomes exposed that not only are they teaching wrong, but their lives don't match what their doctrine is. And 
and it deflates the church. It, it wrecks the church. So it's no surprise to us that the enemy of our souls and the enemy of Christ is also an enemy of his church. And like in a military context, if you're in a war and you have snipers and snipers get up in a high position, and who do they look to take out with the enemy? They look to take out whoever the leader is because they know if they take out the leader that those who follow the leader will be left in disarray and confusion and without leadership. And so the same is true in the church. The enemy goes after those who lead in particular ways. He tempts them in particular ways. He understands their weaknesses and he brings things into their life to draw them apart from Christ. He tempts them to think sideways from the truths of the gospel. And he seeks to lead them to a downfall. Because in doing so, he brings shame upon the church and he brings confusion into the body. And he, at the end of the day, he shuts down the work of Christ in that place, in the testimony of Christ in that community. And Satan, I'm convinced, really doesn't care if a church continues to meet. He just doesn't want it to be effective. He doesn't care if we gather here and sing together particularly. He doesn't gather, care if we come here and do our rituals together, so long as we have no impact on the people outside of these walls. So long as the people who live in Shadamoss and Village Green and Grand Oaks don't give a rip about what we're doing and don't have any respect for what we say or teach. So he'll do whatever he can, and he'll target leaders with that goal in mind, to shut down the effectiveness of the body of Christ and to bring shame to Christ so that others will not be drawn to him and believe. And so because of that, it's critical that a church be very careful in its selection of those who will lead and those who will hold position in the body. And that's why Paul takes this so seriously. It's why Timothy needs to take it so seriously, because this church is reeling from the, the fallout of having people in leadership that likely should not have been there to begin with. And the damage is tremendous. And so Paul lays out some qualifications that the church should consider when elevating men to positions of leadership in the body. We went over last week sort of the, the New Testament structure for church office. There's apostles, an office that is no longer present in the body. You had to be present and see the resurrected Christ, you had to be commissioned by him. You had particular gifts associated with that office that no longer exist. It has ceased to be. We only have two other offices, that of elder and that of deacon. We talked about elders last week in the first part of, of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. It gives us sort of a layout of elders' qualifications, and we sort of did a, a 40,000 foot you know, flyover of that. We touched on some things. We'll draw out some of the same themes today in verses 8 through 13 because they're repeated for deacons. And so we'll talk about that. But as a way of reminder and jumping into the text, we do need to remind ourselves that the issue here, when it comes to those who will hold position in the life of the church, is not their skill particularly. It isn't their ability to persuade particularly. It isn't particularly their giftedness or their ability to communicate or their uh, sort of what level of savvy they are in the business world. It isn't their level of education that is most critical. It isn't any particular uh, sort of abilities or intellects or things that they do well that are in view. At the end of the day, what Paul is concerned with is what God is concerned with, and that is the man's character, his heart, his holiness. The first thing and the most important thing that qualifies a man to serve Christ in the body is a holy life, a heart of holiness, and a life of integrity and character. 
The gifts and the abilities fall down the line after that. And as we look through this list, it is really a list that lays out for us general guidelines for evaluating a person's character. What do we look for in somebody as we're thinking about who should hold office in the body of Christ? And so he lays out for us elders, and he lays out for us deacons. He begins this little part of chapter 3 by saying, uh, this, is, this is a saying is trustworthy at the beginning, and then down in verse 8 where we begin today, he says, deacons likewise, deacons likewise, just like the elders, the same way that there are expectations of elders, in the same fashion, there are expectations for those who would serve as deacons as well. What are those expectations? Well, it's not their wealth. It's not their prominence. It's not their tenure. It's not their secular skills. It's not their success in business or their academic accomplishments. None of those things. It's his character. It's his heart. It's his integrity. And just like we saw with the elders, the qualifications for deacon all find their expression in this text in the present tense, which indicates to us, again, an ongoing sort of reality in the life in the present. A day-to-day reality of who this person actually is. His present state of being, if you will. And, And what we're asking is, is this person's current lifestyle, is what we can observe of his life, is his life marred by some sort of a defect in character which disqualifies him from being able to serve in the life of the church? Does he have a defective character? Is there evidence in his life that his character is defective and shouldn't serve? That's the question that we're asking. And by way of reminder, again, we're not talking about perfection. There is no perfect leader. We're all, we're all human beings with a fallen nature. We all make mistakes. We all sin in various ways. The issue here is not perfection. You should never hold any church leader from the ones who stand and preach to the ones who serve in various ways in the life of the church to some level of perfection. None of us will ever measure up. Ever measure up. And I can assure you, I know the leaders who are in this church, and I can assure you every single one of them looks in the mirror and they know that. They know they don't measure up. We know that. Within the last year, there was a a time where I sat down over coffee with with a fellow who was uh, unhappy with with me uh, out of the life of our church, and he proceeded to list for me what he perceived to be my faults and failures. And... I listened to what he said, and the only response I could come up with to to what he listed for me was, you obviously don't know me very well. I am way worse than that. If that's all you can come up with, man, let me just add to your list, because I'm worse than that. And it's true. As leaders, we understand our own fallen nature, and we understand where we fall short. We're not perfect people. We don't, and, and, you know, a terrible leadership trait is to project yourself as though you are. Because people will start to believe it, and when they see who you really are, they'll be terribly disappointed. Now, leaders have a, uh, godly leaders have a real sense for their sin. Paul is an example of this, right? Even at Paul's old age, late in his life, he's saying things like, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't figure this out. The things I want to do, I still don't do. And the things I wish I didn't do, I still do them. Uh, what, what's wrong with me? I'm, I'm, I'm trapped in this body of death. I can't wait to be out of it. The older he gets, the more mature in Christ he gets, the more aware he becomes of the depths of the roots of sin in his life. He does not get older and think, boy, the older I get, the more perfect I feel. 
nor do any other godly leaders. That's not what we're looking for. What we're asking the question when we're evaluating elders and we're evaluating for deacons is this. Does a, does a person that I'm looking at, do they, do they currently have a lengthy, observable pattern of character, integrity, consistency that serves as a model for the congregation to follow? That's what we're asking. That's what we're asking. And I didn't mention this last week, but I should have, that before we even get to these lists, When we're evaluating these things, you have to go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because before we're asking the question, does a a person qualify for leadership in the church, we need to ask the question, do they give evidence in their life that they're a believer, that they're a Christian, right? And and Galatians 5, 22 lays out for us, Paul does, the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, this is the evidence that a person belongs to Christ. Things happen And they become clear examples of his character and his life among the body. Things like joy, peace, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. When we look at a person and we don't even see the evidence of that, it doesn't even matter what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1 about qualifications for leadership. We, We just, you know, we hold the press right there. If I look at a candidate and I say, man, I don't... I just don't see evidence of love or joy and peace and patience. I, I see the opposite of all those things. It's a person who has no business holding office in the body of Christ. They're to be loved. And they're to be mentored. They're to be taught, just like all of us are. But there has to be evidence that a person's a believer. Beyond that, we move to these lists that Paul lays out for us. Now, we need to ask the question, what is a deacon anyway? And how does it differ from elders? We talked last week about elders. The thing that distinguishes elders are two things. That elders have to be able to teach, and they're the ones who are primarily responsible for the teaching ministry of the church, the preaching ministry of the church, the teaching ministry of church, the doctrine of the church falls under the purview of the elders. That is their responsibility. They have to be able to teach because a man cannot manage that piece of church life if he does not understand his Bible, if he doesn't know how to read it, if he doesn't know how to interpret it, if he doesn't have his doctrine worked out. He can't manage that. He can't sit down with a person who's struggling and bring the Scriptures to bear on their life if he doesn't understand it himself and he can't communicate it. So an elder has to be able to teach for that purpose. And secondly, elders are responsible for the the ruling of the church. And that sounds sort of weird when we say ruling. We think of kings and monarchs. That's not the issue. But the issue is the management, the leadership of the body of Christ here. Elders have a ruling responsibility. They have a responsibility to lead and make decisions and move under Christ, the body of Christ, forward. And those are two things that are exclusive purview of the elders. Deacons, on the other hand, don't do, don't do either of those things. Deacons are lead servants in the body. The word itself, diakonos, is the Greek word. We, in some places, like here, it's just the Greek word transliterated into English. The word that we use, deacon, it sounds a whole lot like diakonos, right? That's because it's a transliterated word. It's an English version of the same word. The word in its original context simply means servant. And in a lot of places in the Bible, the word is just translated servant. It's only translated in your English Bible, deacon, where the context makes clear that what's being spoken of is an an office in the church. But the word itself means servant. It means a table waiter. A table waiter. Think about, like, when you go to a restaurant. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had bad service? Have you ever been to a restaurant and had bad service? I'm wondering because you're looking at me like you don't know. 
I know I have been to a restaurant and had bad service. Have you ever been to a restaurant and had outstanding service? We went up to dinner last night, and we had an outstanding a waiter who, who cared for us. It, took, it was one of the best I've ever seen. We even discussed that. And, and I even thought about that this morning as I was reflecting on our text. When we're thinking about what makes a good, a good deacon, we think in those same categories. What is it that made that guy a great table waiter last night? There were characteristics that set him apart from the ones who provide really crappy service. And it was easy for me to discern the difference because I was on the receiving end of it. That's what deacons are. They're, they're table waiters in the body of Christ. They are those who are responsible for doing the practical and leading the practical hands-on ministry to the body of Christ. They are not leaders who rule. They are not responsible for the authoritative teaching in the body of Christ. They may teach in a class or they may not. It's not a qualification to serve as a deacon. They are leading the practical ministry life of the church. That's what deacons do. They care for the practical needs. They take care of the needs within the body. They care for things like the building and the grounds. They may take leadership over the financial piece of the church. They, they may care for the benevolence of the church in distributing resources to those who are in need. They can care for a lot of the different practical ministries of the church. That's what deacons do. A lot of folks will point to Acts 6 when they start talking about deacons and, and argue that what we find in Acts 6 early in, in the the history of the church are, are actually early deacons. I don't want to spend much time on this, but if you go to Acts 6 and you read for yourself, you'll find that what had happened is the church had grown rapidly and to very large numbers in a very short amount of time, and the apostles were having a very difficult time managing the practical ministry of the church. They are responsible for teaching and for praying, and they were finding that they don't have time to teach and pray because there were practical needs that people had in the church, and they were spinning their wheels trying to care for that, and they were in this crunch. And so what they did was they, under the leadership of the Lord, selected out of the body seven men who could take on the practical ministry leadership so that the apostles could step back and focus on what they were to focus on, which was teaching and prayer. And so... Although these men are not called deacons in Acts chapter 6, I think it is probably true that they set the template, at least, for what deacons that office would become later in the history of the church uh, and, and would be called deacon. And so I just point Acts 6 to you. You can go back and read it on your own. And you can see sort of the practical reason why those men were chosen. It's very similar to the role that deacons would play later on in the history of the church. And so that's what deacons are. They're not elders. They're deacons. And they're different for a reason. But however they're different, in some ways, their qualifications in a lot of ways are the same. And so you'll find, if you were here last week, some overlap in what we talked about last week and this week. So I'm going to try not to be duplicitous in that and you know, make you listen to it twice, particularly because I pushed your patience to the very end last week in keeping you here. So I'm going to spare you this morning. But we do need to look seriously at this list. He begins it by saying the first qualification for deacons, they are likewise must be dignified. Just like the elders, there are qualifications, and the first is they must be dignified. Now, dignified is a word that's a little familiar to us, and you understand what dignity is, right? Do we need to talk about dignity? Do you know somebody, when you encounter them, that's dignified? That carries himself with a level of gravitas and dignity? And do you know when you're in the presence of somebody who doesn't, who's undignified, See, when I ask you questions like that, if you nod like this, then I know you, you get it. If you do that, I get it too. But if you just do this, 
I don't know what that means. I think I'm putting you to sleep. And even if I am, move your head so I don't know different. The word dignified, it carries the meaning of being serious-minded. It just carries the, the, the meaning of serious-minded. It, it's, it's, a, it's a person who's not foolish, who's not flippant, who carries themselves with a level of seriousness. It's, it's, it's somebody who doesn't make light of serious things. He carries himself with dignity. You're not, we're not talking about being emotionless. Deacons laugh and they cry and they have fun and they, they live life that's uh, a full range of emotions, but they carry themselves in a way that isn't flippant or silly or childish. They carry themselves with a level of seriousness about them that you know when you go to engage them about something serious, they're going to take it seriously. And you can trust that. That's what dignified means. Not only do they need to be dignified, but he tells us they ought not to be double-tongued. Not to be double-tongued. And I don't know what you see when you open up your mouth in the mirror, but I only see one tongue. If you see two, that's pretty remarkable. Um, but you don't need to show me. But that's not what he's talking about here, two different tongues. It's a metaphor for two things, and I don't want to dwell here. But it's a, a metaphor for two things. He's saying that a deacon is not to be duplicitous, and he's not to be hypocritical. Duplicitous simply means he tells one person one thing, and he tells another person the opposite. Do you know folks like that? Have you encountered people like that who will tell you one thing, and then they'll go to the next person and tell them something altogether different, and you realize pretty quickly that you can't trust anything that they say? That's a double-tongued person. That's a person who will say the opposite here, there, and everywhere. He just tells people what they want to hear. He doesn't speak and, and dwell and sort of live in a sort of a, a, an aroma of truth. He just says whatever at any given moment. That kind of person you can't trust because you don't know when they're talking to you if they're, true, if they're telling you the truth or if they're being serious. You can't trust the person who's duplicitous. That's double-tongued. The other sort of subtle meaning here is hypocritical. And we understand what that means, right? That's a person who says one thing but does something altogether different. A person is double-tongued when they try to impose on you sort of restrictions that when you evaluate their life, you go, uh-uh, I don't see that. And there's a disconnect. That's called hypocrisy. It's also one of the shades of meaning of double-tongued here. So when we're evaluating people to serve in our body as deacons, we're looking not only at how they carry themselves as far as dignity, but how they use their words and how they speak. We're asking the questions like, when I hear that person speak, do I walk away knowing, hey, that person told me the truth? Or do I walk away going, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure I can trust what that, that person said. Deacons can't be double-tongued. There can't be any question about what they say, whether it's true or not, whether they're telling you what they actually believe and live, and whether they're telling you the same thing they would tell the next person if they came and asked the same thing. can't be double-tongued and serve in the body of Christ. The body of Christ deals in truth, truth and clarity. And that's what people should get from every believer, but particularly from those who serve as deacons. He goes on to say, he must be dignified, not double-tongued. And he says next, he must be not addicted to much wine. Now, if you kind of scroll back up uh, in the qualifications for elders in the first part, um, we talked about this, you know, we saw this issue, we actually didn't talk about it. In, in uh, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 2, <clears throat> actually verse 3 of chapter 3, 
it says that an elder must not be a drunkard. Down here, he says a, a, a deacon <clears throat> must not be addicted to much wine. He's communicating the same thing two different ways. And he's talking about the use of alcohol in the person's life. The word translated not addicted to much wine here is a simple word that simply means to occupy oneself with or to turn one's mind to. To occupy oneself with, to turn one's mind to. It's a present active participle in the Greek, which means nothing to you, but I'll tell you what it does mean. It means, it speaks of a habitual practice in the present. Okay? Does that make sense? You don't understand habitual practice in the present. A deacon is not to be addicted to much wine. The, the habitual practice of his life is not one who is addicted to wine. He's not a drinker. That's the issue behind this. He's not one who's known as, as a drinker. And, and the issue is that the, the person who's to be uh, serving as a deacon is a person who's not to be preoccupied. That's what that word really captures. He's not to be preoccupied with alcohol. He's not to be allowing that to influence his life and his thinking. It's not something that he thinks about, that he pursues, that he's actively after. He doesn't hang out in the bars. He doesn't engage in the kinds of behaviors associated with drinking. Now, I'm going to be really transparent and clear with you about this because I think it's, it's an area where we need to be transparent and clear about what the Bible actually says and what it actually does not say. And we need to talk about this for a moment because we didn't last week. <clears throat> I'll be crystal clear with you. I've been a Baptist my whole life. I've never touched alcohol in my life that I can recall. And as long as I've lived, Baptists have been known as teetotalers, right? Nod your head if you've heard that before. People who do not drink alcohol. It's often written into our documents as a denomination. But let me be clear to you. The Bible itself does not demand complete abstinence of believers nor of people who hold office. That's where the Bible is very clear about where it draws the line. It draws the line of sin at drunkenness. You can Google that yourself or search your Bible app and you can find clear restrictions about drunkenness all throughout the Bible. And the reason you find those is because people in the body of Christ were apt to get drunk. And so the biblical writers speak to it and say, this is sinful and it's wrong. You have taken something too far. It's now clouding your judgment. It's clouding your thinking. It's clouding your behavior. You're talking in ways you would normally talk. You're behaving in ways you wouldn't normally talk. And it's unbecoming to a Christian. It's sinful against the Lord to be drunken. That's where the Bible draws the line of sin. And the Bible says a lot about the negative effects, at least potentially, of alcohol. Let me give you just a quick uh, sort of overview. Look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. The Proverbs are great to speak to these things, and I like Proverbs because they're short and they make sense to me. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says this, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is what? I want you to say it with me, is... Not wise. Okay. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Flip a page or two over in your Bible to Proverbs 23. And read with me from uh, verse 29 forward. <clears throat> Who has woe? By the way, if you don't know what woe is, it's bad. You don't want it. You don't want woe. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? 
those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you'll say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. That's pretty drunk. You get beat up and you didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. It's a pretty vivid description, isn't it, of the actual reality? If drunkenness has ever been a part of your life story, you probably go, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty clear. If you look to Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 56 and you find that even in the history of, of God's dealing with his leaders in the church, that there have been seasons in Isaiah 58, excuse me, 28 and 56, you see God excoriating his leaders in the Old Testament because the, the priests, the people who are running the religious establishment are, are a bunch of drunks. And God blasts them for that. <clears throat> When we think of the Old Testament, when we think of the New Testament, when we think of the first century, everybody drank wine to some degree. It was the, it was the most common drink, household drink, that everybody had. It was mixed and diluted with water. The problem was, <clears throat> in the absence <clears throat> of sort of purification systems that we have today, water could be dangerous. It could make you very sick. If you travel to parts of the world right now and you drink the water, you can get sick. And so they diluted it with wine, and it sort of... Lowered the potency of the wine, and the wine purified the water. And so people drank various sort of dilutions of wine all the time. It was the normal drink, which was why drunkenness was a problem, because people were tempted to go too far with that. <clears throat> now, I'll say this I think the Bible makes an awful lot of arguments, like from Proverbs 21, for you to consider on your own conscience why it is probably unwise for you to just stay away from alcohol. I want you to be clear about what I'm saying. The Bible draws a line of sin at drunkenness. Beyond that, you have a conscience that the Lord has built into your heart and your life. And you have to determine what obedience looks for, looks like for you in particular areas of your life like this. So it's a matter of wisdom and discernment as to how much, or if at all, you engage in this piece of activity in your life. Am I being clear about that? For me, wisdom dictates that I don't touch alcohol and I don't touch it at all. Now, that's an easy thing for me. It's never been a temptation in my life. It's never been a habit in my life. I've never been the slightest bit drawn to alcohol. I think beer smells awful. I can smell somebody who's been drinking a mile away, and I just don't like to stink. So that's enough right there for me to keep me away. And so I've just never, I've just never done this. That doesn't make me a better Christian. It does not make me a better person. It doesn't make me a better anything than somebody who chooses to do differently than that. But that's the choice of my life. That's what wisdom and discernment dictates for me. There are other factors in my life that lead me to that conclusion. I live in a culture where I have lots of other things to drink, like Dr. Pepper, and I like that. It's probably also, no, it actually is really bad for me. The doctors in the room all say, you know. And I probably should rethink that too, but sweet tea, that's bad too. Water, I don't know. There's lots of other choices I have. 
where I don't run the risk of sin. Where I don't run the risk of clouding my thinking and doing foolish things that I'll regret later. So I have lots of other options. Secondly, uh, the Lord has given me sort of influence in what I do. And the things that I do set a template that others follow. And so I don't ever want to be the cause of somebody else's pain and grief. I remember when I started out in ministry, I was a youth pastor like so many pastors are, and I saw what a struggle this was for teenagers. I buried teenagers and watched the grief of moms and dads who had to bury their kid because they were drinking and driving. I saw all the ramifications, the painful, grievous ramifications that people had to deal with because of the result of too much alcohol. And so that left a bad taste in my mouth, if you will, for the thing. I figured, I'm trying to see people come to Christ. I'm trying to see them come alive. And this thing is, the substance is either killing people. So I saw it as a competition for what I was actually trying to do. And I never wanted to be the one that somebody looked at me and said, well, that guy does it. It's okay for me. And then they go out and they, they kill themselves. I just didn't want that on my conscience. The third thing, and probably the most practical reality for me, is this. I have enough temptation in my life right this minute to battle that I don't need to introduce something that I don't know if I can handle it or I can't. Honestly, that's a stupid thing for me to do. I got my hands full. I don't need something else that might be a problem for me. But all of that, you need to understand, is me telling you what wisdom looks like in my life. It's not me telling you what wisdom looks like in your life. You have to discern that. That's part of being a mature believer, is you discern these things in your life. Where we make a mistake is being fuzzy about what the Bible actually says. The Bible makes clear for a deacon, you're not to be addicted to much wine. It's not to be a driving force in your life. It's not to be something that motivates you in any way whatsoever, if it's present. Same of elders, by the way. He moves on from that. And he says, a deacon can't be greedy for dishonest gain. He can't be de- greedy for dishonest gain. Well, what's that all about? Well, Britt talked to us a couple of weeks ago about uh, what it looks like to be a, a wise handler of, of money and resources and wealth. What godly people look like when they manage those things. Go back online and listen to that outstanding message on that. But it's similar to what he said about elders in verse 8, right? That they're not to be greedy for dishonest gain, not a lover of money. And the whole point here is that they can't be driven by money and wealth and materialism. They're driven by a desire to please Christ and to serve His people, not pursuing wealth and resources. It doesn't mean that they're to live lives with vows of poverty. It doesn't mean they can't have a nice car and a nice home and wear cool clothes. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that the driving force of their life is not that they're after those things. Those things are not the motivations. They're not in it for the money. And it also means they're not flaunting their wealth. They're people who, if they have resources that God has blessed them with, they have an open hand. And they joyfully give to meet other people's needs. One of the reasons this is critical for deacons is because deacons often deal with church money. Deacons might be responsible for dispersing money in benevolence. They might be responsible for managing their finances of the church. It would be a disaster for a church to have somebody doing that who's greedy. The temptations that a man would run in that place would be tremendous. 
and the risk would be terrible. I read an article from our insurance, a former insurance company, a company called Brotherhood Mutual this week, and it caught my attention. And I'll just read you an excerpt from it. It said this, increasing at an annual rate of more than 6%, researchers expect worldwide church financial fraud to reach the 80 billion mark by the year 2025. 80 billion mark by 2025. That's not the whole picture still, they said. Most cases of church fraud actually go unreported and therefore are not included in the statistics. Quote, church thieves are creative. On average, 30 or more claims involving fraud, embezzlement, or staff dishonesty show up uh, in this particular man's desk every year. And he says this, some cases seem so obvious that it's a wonder any thief would think they could go undiscovered. And yet they do to the tune of $80 billion potentially by 2025. But this is what caught my attention. He said, quote, Often church people can't bring themselves to believe that their pastor, a church trustee, a longtime member, or the school cook could possibly steal from the church. Normally, it's one of the most trusted people in the church who's pilfering from the collection plate or diverting funds from the church budget or investment accounts to feed their spending habits or pay their personal debt. Listen, it's evidence that even within the body of Christ, we don't take things like this very seriously, that people who are greedy end up in positions where they have the ability to do such things. So when we look at greed, you might look across that and you say, I agree, that's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. Deacons cannot be people who are motivated and driven by money, who are poor managers of money and resources and wealth. The temptation will be too much. It goes on to say in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That sounds sort of bizarre or hard to grasp at first, but if you understand what he means by mystery, when he says mystery, Paul refers to the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And all throughout his writings, he talks about the gospel in terms of a mystery. He's talking about the fact of Christ's coming, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of those things were very mysterious in an Old Testament context. In the Old Testament, uh, sort of Jew had no concept of what it was going to look like when Christ came. And so when Christ came, Paul says it's a mystery. That's now been revealed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I might summarize here what he's talking about, he says this deacons have to be men who understand the gospel and have sound doctrine. They're men who understand the, the gospel and they have sound doctrine. They don't have to be able to teach like elders, but they have to be clear on the gospel and they have to have a grasp on sound doctrine. They can't be biblical novices. Maybe that's a good way of saying it. You can't be a biblical novice and serve in this role. Don't have to be able to teach it, but you do have to know it and be able to understand it and live it. Then he says they have to be tested, right? Let them be tested, Paul, Paul writes. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The idea here is this. The church is to give prospective leaders opportunity to serve. And as they observe them in their opportunities to serve, they're watching. And it's, it's somewhat of a test. They're looking to see, does this person's character prove to be true and godly and gold in the midst of the, what they're doing in the life of the church? And over time, we begin to observe, yes, indeed they do. They're ready for a different level of leadership. In verse 6, earlier on, 
he says of elders, they must not be a recent convert. It's the same thing. It's the issue that a person has to be tested. He can't be a ministry novice to be elevated to this position. The word tested is a word called dakimazo, and it simply is a word that means, that sort of has the idea of watching underneath it. It was used of crafting metals, where they would heat metals to the, almost to the point where they melt and observe the character of the metal at such a high degree of temperature. And writers, both secular and religious, use the word to describe sort of the evaluation of warriors or people in leadership. And the idea is that when people live and they, they do the work of the ministry, they, they come under the heat of what it looks like to be in ministry. The heat and the pain and the difficulty and the adversity. And that heat heats up their life. And as their life gets heated up in the testing process, their character shines through and you see it. You don't know what someone's character is if they don't see him go through the heat. So when he says tested, that's what he means. Deacons are to be people who are to be watched in the heat of battle, observed as they deal with adversity, how they deal with pain, how they deal with affliction, and how they deal with stress. And in the midst of all that, their character shines through. It, comes, it come, becomes gold. The heat of ministry burns off chaff, and it brings the gold to the surface is what it does. And the church has to have tested people that you've seen, that you know, meet that qualification. And he says, once you've tested them, let them serve as deacons if they prove blameless. The word blameless here is is a synonym of the word above reproach earlier on. For elders, it's the same word and it carries the same meaning, blameless or above reproach. Same thing. And, and I think it's more helpful the way he casts it here in Deacons because it's clear what he's trying to say. It's, it's attached to the testing. And he's saying, look, if you want to have somebody to serve as a, as a deacon, if they're somebody you're considering, you let them be tested. They go through the test and you observe their character in the heat. And if they come out of the backside of the test, he says, if they prove themselves blameless through it, let them serve. Do you see that? So there's a sequence here. For deacons, you test them first. If they come out of the test blameless, you let them serve. So it goes together that way. Again, not perfection, just a sustained reputation for character, integrity, consistency. He mentions again one woman man. We covered that in great detail last week, so you can go back and it's the same exact characteristic, the same exact qualification. You must uh, uh, be... Be a one-woman man. You can look that up on your own or go back last week and, and capture what we said. The bottom line is, whether he's married or he's not married, he's not a ladies' man. You don't need that in deacons. And this is really where I want to spend a minute or two. He manages his household and his children well. Let deacons be the husband or one wife managing their children and their households well, because we didn't cover this last week. In Titus 1.6, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. It's the same thing. The challenge that we get to with this text, when you look at Titus, his children are believers. The word believers can be actually just translated faithful. It could be rendered his children are faithful, meaning faithful to their father, respectful to their father, not insubordinate, following his leadership and under order in the home. I think that's the best casting of it. You could see that differently if you so choose. At the end of the day, the parallels between the home and the church. And he says, if somebody is going to assume a role of leadership in the body of Christ, 
If he's got a family and he's got children, then there needs to be evidence that he knows how to manage that environment. If he can't manage that smaller environment in a way that's healthy and good and wholesome, then he doesn't have any right to be leading a, a body of the body of Christ or serving in a leadership role in the body of Christ. He can't manage his own home well. Again, perfection is not the issue here. Elders' kids are like everybody's kids. My kid is like your kid. They sin. They go through rebellious phases. These things happen in the lives of elders' families. They shouldn't be treated any differently. They have the same expectations. But when we do see in the life of a, of a person children who are unrestrained and rebellious and undisciplined, the question needs to roll through our minds. Is this child's rebellion indicative of a failure on the part of his father to lead and to discipline and to order his life? Is it, is it indicative of a character problem with his dad, that he hasn't led his children well, that they don't respect him, that they are not under his leadership? Is, it a behavioral, is their behavior a reflection of his character deficiency? And I want you to go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you what I think exactly is the, is the issue that he's talking about here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a high priest named Eli. And here's what the Bible tells us in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. That's pretty clear. The sons of Eli were worthless men. May that never be said of our kids, right? They were said of his. They did not know the Lord. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This isn't a momentary rebellion. This isn't a phase. These are grown men. They had a clear reputation for being worthless, sinful, ungodly, unbelieving, undisciplined men, worthless men. And the worst part about it is their father was the high priest, and they did not know the Lord. Now, granted, parents can't control the outcome of their children's faith, right? At some point, children come out from under our leadership and they have to, for themselves, own their faith on their own. And we can't guarantee, even in the most godly of upbringing, that a child is going to turn out a particular way. We can't guarantee that. They have to own it. Sometimes children who've been raised in very godly homes reject the Lord and grieve their parents. But their parents who taught them and who shepherded them the truth grieved that and they evangelized them. And that's not what we have in view with Eli and his kids here. The problem is with Eli. They were stealing. These kids were stealing at that moment from the offering. They were stealing from the offering for their own benefit. And their father, the high priest, knew about it. He did nothing. He wagged his finger at him a little bit, but he did nothing. In verse 22, listen to this, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all these things his son was doing to Israel, how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So stealing money wasn't all that was going on. And he says to them, why do you do such things? For I hear the evil dealings from all these people. Now there's a problem. There are his sons and he has no idea what they're doing. has to hear from other people. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear. He talks to them some more and at the end he says, but... They would not listen to the voice of their father. Eli did not have their respect. His word carried no weight whatsoever with his kids. This wasn't a one-time deal. It was an established pattern of behavior on their part and neglect as a father on his part. And if you read, we don't have time, the rest of that chapter, you find that God holds Eli accountable. Not only do his kids get killed prematurely, but Eli is killed because of it. 
This is the issue. Eli had no business being in leadership in God's economy in any form or fashion. He was a derelict father. And his kids were evidence of his failure as a dad because of their sustained level of behavior and his permissive spirit that just let them get by with it. What's the issue here for deacons? What is Paul trying to say? He's saying that deacons are men who in their home strike a good balance between law and grace. They're not iron-fisted tyrants who beat their families into submission. And they're not the kind of men who are so gracious that they refuse to discipline and establish order in their home. They're people who manage that well. They raise their children in a context of respect and order. When they sin, their fathers are active in their life, pointing out their sin and drawing them to repentance in Christ and to wise behavior. And as long as they are under the authority of the father in the home, they are ordered and they live with respect. That's the kind of men deacon are to be in their homes. The last thing we'll talk about here, and time is already up, is he says this. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, dignity keeping his children submissive. Verse 6. Excuse me, shoot down. to. Uh, let's go to verse 11. I want to cover this and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Verse 11. Depending on what version of the Bible you have, it says, Their wives likewise must be de- dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This is a, a key conflict issue in Bible translation. It says in, if you've got an ESV, their wives. If you have another translation, translation into English, it might say women. The reason for that is because the word that is translated in the ESV, wives, is a word that is in many other places translated women. It can mean either one. The only way you know the difference is the context is what tells you the difference. So there's nothing indicative in the word itself in a particular case as to whether it should be translated women in general or wives. I believe the ESV is incorrect or the translators are wrong here that this is not about wives, that this is about women who serve in the role as servant leader deacons in the life of the church. And there are three reasons why. Three things. One comes from the text and that is the word that's translated here has no possessive in front of it. In other words, it doesn't say their wives. Speaking of deacons, deacons are to be all these things and their wives are to be these things. It just says women in general. And women, likewise, are to be. There's no possessive that indicates they are attached to or belong to the men who were spoken of before that. That's a clear indication to me. Another clear indication is elder is clearly the higher office of authority than that of deacon. And there's not one word about elders' wives. It doesn't make any rational sense to me why there are expectations of deacons' wives and there are no expectations of elders' wives. That just rationally doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why are wives accountable in the lower office, if you will, authority-wise, and not accountable in the higher office of elder? Nothing is mentioned there. And the grammar also seems to indicate it because he says, likewise, likewise. That's sort of the... The the trigger word, elders are this, likewise, the second category of people, deacons are this, and then likewise, the third category, women, must be these things. And so, my understanding of the text 
based on those three things, is that the word should be women here. And the issue is not wives of deacons, but women who serve in the role of deacon. This has been a complicated, I'm not going to spend more time on this other than to say this has been a complicated issue in Baptist life because most Baptist churches are not organized biblically with elders and deacons. They're not properly organized with elders who rule and are able to teach and deacons who are not those two things. And so when you conflate those two roles and you call it deacon, a woman cannot serve as a deacon because she's filling the role of elder even though it's called deacon. That was the way I grew up. But in a context where we're organized biblically like we are here, and I don't say that arrogantly, but I I just say it because it is. We have elders who are able to teach, who rule. That does not include women. Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy makes that clear. Deacons, on the other hand, do not rule. They are not an authority figure. They never have authority over other people in the sense of teaching authority like elders do. Because of that, women can serve as lead teachers so long as, excuse me, as lead servants so long as they meet the qualifications that are here, in addition to the ones for the men, a couple that he lists. They're not to be slanderers or gossips, to be sober-minded, just like the other qualification, and also dignified women. I stirred that right up, and I'm exiting right now. I'm getting on an airplane at 4 o'clock, and I'm going to the West Coast. This is perfect, perfect timing, right? Perfect timing. And so, if you want to know how does this translate into our life, currently we don't have women who serve as deacons, but we could. We could have women who serve as deacons because our deacons are not the lead teachers. They do not have the authority to lead. In no case are deacons an authority over other people in the body of the church. They're lead servants who gather people up to do things practically in the life of the body. So, there could potentially be a situation where we had a ministry that needed practical leadership and we would have a lady do it. We could even call her deacon in that context. So, that's that. We're going to just wrap it up here. At the end of the day, it's all about character. It's all about integrity. It's all about consistency. Whether it's an elder, or whether it's a deacon, or whether it's a woman. It doesn't matter who serves as a deacon. The issue is the heart, the issue is holiness, and the issue is character. That's what we're looking for. People can dazzle you with their ability to speak or with their academic sort of degrees. They can dazzle you with their business acumen or their wealth or their tenure in the church. And none of those things matter one inch. What matters is the heart and the observed character that we see. When we look at people, we're asking the question, would I follow that person? Can I trust that they are godly people that I would follow and believe? Do they set an example of the kind of person I want to be? That's the kind of thing we should be thinking about. And that's what all of these characteristics are driving us toward. So I pray that that's what you think about as we seek to bring on two new elders in the near future and other leaders in the future beyond that. That's what we're asking, and that's what you need to be evaluating. So let's pray about this. God, you are a gracious God, and your word is good and true and holy and right. And we thank you for it. It guides us. And it gives us boundaries within which we speak and live and act. Lord, sometimes your boundaries are popular and sometimes they're not. In either case, our job is to do the best we can to understand them and live them with a pure conscience. We thank you that in the body of Christ, in this body of Christ, and in everyone, you raise up in the body people to serve your people. People who are lead servants. Deacons. Whose character is evident to all. Who rise... And and raise their hand and say, I'll serve. 
I'll give my time. I'll give my energy. I'll give my gifts. I'll sacrifice in my personal life to come and invest in this body of Christ and to get the practical work of ministry done. And Lord, you know right now in this body we need deacons. We particularly need a deacon to manage our building and our grounds. Elders are doing that. And Lord, it's deacon work and you would raise somebody up to do that. We have other areas of practical ministry that need deacon leadership and we pray, God, that you would raise up deacons to do it. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment as we evaluate people to serve. That we might affirm people that you've affirmed. Meet your qualifications. We would give sort of a, a forward progress to the testimony of Christ in this church, this city, and around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.